Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm looking at the sacred timekeeper up above, and it says 9.35, so I, and there's been lots of good stuff already, but if we finish about 10.30, um, <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> no, we got good stuff this morning as we continue our series looking at uh, this antidote for self, lessons in humility. So let me invite you to go in your Bible, whether it's printed, whether you have it on your phone or want to use the Bible in the pew, go to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 22, and we're going to entitle this message, Appearances versus Reality, a story of two churches. All right, Revelation 3, verses 7 to 22. As you're going there, I'd like to tell you a well-known story. Illustrates where the direction we're going. This story involves an emperor. This emperor loved to get clothes. Matter of fact, he spent all of his money constantly buying new clothes and he would change his outfit multiple times a day. And then one day, two men showed up at the emperor's court and said, uh, your majesty, we can make you a magnificent suit of clothes that only the very wise and the very capable can see. Well, the emperor thought, this is wonderful. So he gave these two men all kinds of money and wealth, and the two men set to work, and they worked tirelessly multiple days, and eventually they told the emperor, your majesty, your new suit of clothes is ready. And so it was parade day. As the emperor went down the street in his capital city with his courtiers with him, with his band playing with him, and he had his scepter and he had his orb of office and everything was going great. People were applauding until a little child said, he has nothing on. Reality can be hard. Yeah. The child spoke the truth. Now we smile at the vanity and the foolishness of this emperor, but we all know how easy it is for our vanity and our foolishness to trip us up. Our problem is, is that it is very, very easy for us to deceive ourselves. And the issue is our sin nature and our corrupt hearts. That's why the Lord wrote through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? The only one who can truly understand us, who knows us intimately, is God himself. And that's why the very next verse says this, I, the Lord, examine the heart, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to what his actions deserve. Well, what we have to realize when it comes to our actions is that we can never please God by our own efforts. 
That's why we need the life-changing power of the gospel. Only the Lord sees who we truly are, and he loves us, and he offers to each and every one of us the chance to become, as Paul writes, a new creation in Christ. Now, the main idea that we're driving at in this message is this. Only Jesus sees us as we really are. Only by obeying him can we become people that honor him. Apart from Jesus, we're all as foolish as that emperor was. Now, to illustrate this point, to drive it home, what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at two of the churches that the book of Revelation was written to. The churches happen to be the original city of Philadelphia and a neighboring city called Laodicea. They could not have been more different from each other. But what they had in common was this. The outward appearance of each church, what you saw on the outside, was totally different from what they were in the eyes of Jesus. Who, of course, as Peter tells us, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. All right? According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. Now, the church in Philadelphia, I'll tell you up front, it looked puny. It looked scruffy. It looked like definitely the people came from the wrong side of the tracks, as we would say. The church in Laodicea, however, it looked rich, it looked blessed, it looked prosperous, and in the Lord's eyes, it was a disgusting mess. So, the outline is real straightforward on this. We're gonna look, first of all, at the Lord's letter to the church in Philadelphia. We're gonna see how he identifies himself to them. We're also gonna see how he commends them. And finally, we're going to see his promise to them, all right? Then the Lord moves on to Laodicea. First of all, again, he will identify himself. Then he gives his condemnation, all right? Notice the difference. Accommodation for one church, condemnation for the other church, and then finally, his promise, all right? So, let's read now, read with me as we take a look at Revelation chapter three, verses seven to 13, the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel, or messenger, of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one sh will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Jesus' letter to the Philadelphia church. First of all, he identifies himself in verse 7. He says, to begin with, I'm the Holy One, meaning that he is dedicated God and even more that he is absolutely sinless. Then he says, I'm the true one. Now, true, in Greek before New Testament times, true meant genuine. It meant real, not counterfeit. And that's true about Jesus. Jesus was everything that has to do with God and being everything that has to do with God, being exactly like the nature of his father, he was the real thing. He was not a counterfeit. But what's even more important in some ways is true in the Old Testament means faithful. Jesus never lets us down. He's faithful, he's trustworthy, he's dependable. Psalm 146 verses five to seven says this, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith, who is faithful forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. We can trust God even when things get hard because God is always true. Years ago, my parents used to tell a story of when they were driving up in Colorado to the very top of Pikes Peak which actually proved to be a disappointment because the peak basically was kind of in the midst of a cloud bank. But what was memorable as they related the story was the drive up. Because Pikes Peak at this time, you went up a two lane road up to the peak and you were driving basically through the fog, through these clouds, and there was no guardrail. So all you could see was the road in front of you and missed. You had to stay on the road. No taking shortcuts, all right? But the road was true. The road was dependable. They stayed on the road. The second thing that was really special, they said, is after they were coming back down, and now, of course, they're on the left side of the road, and they're hugging the peak, watching the eyes of the people going up to the peak. God is true, God is faithful, especially when we don't know what's going on and we have to trust him, amen? He also, he says, he has the key of David. What in the world is that? We all know about keys, all right? Um, The staff was laughing at me, some of them, the not so nice ones. 
The other day, because uh, we just recently in our new location, which eventually, once everything gets settled, we want to show that off to all of you in the church, all right? But we have this fence around it, and unbeknownst to me, Pastor Mark had just locked the, um, the, the fence, okay, the previous day. And I show up very early because I need to work on stuff, and I can't get in. And at the same time that I'm there, also the people show up who are delivering our office furniture that we desperately need, and they can't get in, and they're looking at me like I know what to do. (laughs) I don't have the key. And then Mark's, bless his heart, (laughs) later tells me, all you had to do was reach around and undo the lock on the other side. Jesus has the key of David. Uh, the story behind this, I'll let you look it up on your own, is in Isaiah 22, 22. There was a man, a good, honest, godly man named Eliakim who controlled access to King Hezekiah. He had the key of David, okay? However, Jesus holds the true key. Through him, we have access into the very presence of God himself and into his kingdom. That's what that little phrase means. Now, what follows in verses eight to 10 is Jesus's commendation. And the first thing I want you to notice as I let you read through this again, hopefully you're doing this as we're going through this, the Lord has absolutely nothing bad to say about this church. Imagine if the Lord wrote a letter to Resurrection Church and he describes us intimately and wouldn't it be wonderful if he had nothing to correct? That's what he's doing with this church. These people are like, if you remember the story that the Lord told of the parable of the people, the servants who received the talents, all this fabulous wealth, Three servants, one got five, one got two, one got one talent, and a talent was an amount of money. Story is told in Matthew chapter 25, beginning of verse 14. Two of the servants doubled the master's investment. And the Lord said to both of them the exact same words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's like these people in Philadelphia. And then he tells him, I'm going to leave an open door for you, and nobody is ever going to shut that door. And in the Greek language, the Lord is absolutely emphatic. When he opens something, it stays open. Now, the background to that is, first of all, this city, Philadelphia, was meant to be a city that spread Greek language and culture through the surrounding area, and they did that. But more important for us, who has the door to our salvation? Jesus. That's why in John chapter 10, verse seven through 10, he says, I am the door. You go through me to be saved. And also, a door presents an opportunity, right? We have opportunities to serve Jesus. And no one will take that away because 
Jesus is the one that opens the door. That's the reason why Paul, years earlier, when he wrote to the Corinthians and he was going through a difficult time as he served and preached the gospel in Ephesus, he wrote this at one point. He said, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me and there are many adversaries. And then he shortly after that, Second Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, he asked them to pray for him. But the important thing is, if God opens a door for us to serve, whether we're puny, whether we're scruffy, whether we're weak, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus opened the door. You know where the church the evangelical church is actually growing the fastest. One of the places, Iran. Iran, yeah. The place that held those Americans hostage, and those of us who are older remember this very well. When the ruler of Iran was toppled and Iran switched to become the kind of government it is now, At that time, there were only something like 500 Christians in the entire country. Now, missionaries are saying, and they don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere in the tens of thousands of people that have come to the Lord. Why? Because Jesus opened the door. Now, the key to this also, guys, is this. He's got the keys. We don't. So I like what John Stott says about this. He wrote, Christ has the keys. He opens the door. There's no sense in trying to barge our way unceremoniously through doors that are still locked. We've never done that, have we? (laughs) We are sometimes in a greater hurry than God himself. Oh, Then the Lord tells them he's going to protect them. He's going to preserve them. First of all, he's going to protect them from these people that have been attacking them. And the Lord himself, these are his words. He says, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're false Jews. And then he makes the interesting comment. He says, eventually these people either in the lifetime of the Philadelphians or later before the Lord himself, these people are going to bow down to you and they're going to acknowledge that I have loved you. Now the background to that is over and over again in the Old Testament. For example, in a place, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, the Jews are told that eventually they would be vindicated that the surrounding people that have been attacking them and trying to destroy them and persecute them will come and bow down to them and acknowledge they are God's people. Well, Jesus flips the story. He says, these people are gonna come to realize they're not my people. They're false. You are my people. And then the Lord says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, I'll tell you, if you've studied Revelation, and I have studied Revelation, I have taught Revelation, do I enjoy teaching Revelation? No. But I have. 
because it is part of the word of God. And by the way, it's the only book of the Bible that says you're blessed if you read it and study it. This statement, I will keep you from the hour of trial, is one of the most debated phrases in the entire book. Here's the deal. I'll give it to you as a question. Does the Lord usually keep his people by removing them from trouble or by protecting them in the midst of their trouble? I hope you see the difference. There's only one other place, and it's interesting, it's Jesus himself talking that has the exact same two Greek words translated in our Bibles, keep from. And it's the words of Jesus himself when he's praying for us, his people. John 17, 15, he says this. I do not ask, he's talking to his father, that you take them out of the world, but that you, here it is, keep them from the evil one. It's not removal. It's protection. When Paul and Barnabas finish their first missionary journey and they go back and they revisit their churches and they set up spiritual leaders in the churches and they pray for these elders, Luke writes this. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, that's where they preached, strengthening the disciples and encouraging to remain true to the faith. And this is what they said to him. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Serving the Lord, hear me now. Serving the Lord is never a free pass from trouble. Rather, it's walking in his strength even in the midst of trouble. I went through a time of trouble this last week, as people that are close to me know. On the one hand, I love to be able to do this. I honestly do, all right? which is kind of funny considering how shy I am normally by nature, but I love to be able to teach. However, I've done this often enough over the last several years to know that every time I get up here and get ready to proclaim and teach the word, I'm gonna get hammered the week before. And frankly, this last week was probably one of the worst, and part of it was technology. Sometime, look up the meaning of the word Luddite. If you read it, that's me. And frankly, it wasn't just that, it was other things too. But at one point, I honestly said out loud, I said, I'm ready to give up. And Linda prayed for me, others were praying for me, and eventually the depression and the anxiety lifted. But... Serving God is never a free pass. You know why God takes us through those hard times like that? It's because that's the only way we grow stronger in our faith. Okay? 
Then there's his promise, verses 11 to 13. First of all, he says, I am coming soon. Now we all know how the Lord defines soon and how we would define soon are probably two different things. The point is, is the certainty of his return. And that, by the way, is the whole message of the book of Revelation. I am coming soon. Then he says, and this is awesome if we catch it, the one who conquers, who conquers anybody that's in Christ, we share his victory. The one in Christ, according to 1 John, Anyone who's in Christ overcomes the world. And how do we overcome the world? Through our faith in Jesus. So this is for all of us. The one who conquers, he says, I will make a pillar. Okay. That's nice. You got to catch this. In the Old Testament, in front of Solomon's temple, there were two pillars. One was named Yakin, the other was named Boaz, and I've forgotten what the names mean, okay? So don't ask me later. The one pillar, 35 feet tall, same for the other. Bigger round than I can make my hands go. These were massive pillars, okay? So when they hear, God is gonna make me a pillar, that's what they're thinking. Oh, I'm gonna become like Yakin, I'm gonna become like Boaz. And he says, they will never go out, meaning they will never be shaken. Well, of course they're never gonna be shaken. Things want multiple tons, and they're huge. But what we gotta catch is this, guys. We all know, if I mention this phrase, you know exactly what I'm referring to, the big one. You live in California any length at all, sooner or later you're gonna hear about the big one. And for those of you who don't catch on, I'm talking about an earthquake, okay? Now, frankly, I, I'll stay in California because I don't, have, I don't normally deal with tornadoes, I don't have hurricanes. Yeah, there is, of course, earthquakes. The deal is, in Philadelphia, this little city had twice experienced terrible earthquakes in living memory of those people. Both of them had flattened the town. And a man who wrote about the ancient world who was from there, a guy by the name of Strabo, he says that as you'd walk through the cities, you could, through the city, you could actually see the cracks in the walls. People were so scared of the earthquakes, they actually lived out in the open country. But in Jesus, you will become a pillar, you will never be shaken, you will be absolutely, totally secure, regardless of what happens around you. And then notice he says, I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, that's the new Jerusalem, that's gonna be awesome, according to Revelation 21 and 22. And he says, I will write on them my new name. Not only are we absolutely secure in Christ, we are also fundamentally forever his possession. Now, 
On appearance, Philadelphia looked puny, scrawny. No money, no nothing. But spiritually, they were A1. What about Laodicea? Well, let's take a look at the Lord's letter to the Laodiceans. Let's pick it up, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to, put on, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, first of all, verse 14, Jesus identifies himself to him. First thing he tells them, I'm the amen. Remember how when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, Jesus likes to say, as it translates into our Bibles, truly, truly, or some of your Bibles say most assuredly. In the original language, in the Greek, what it appears as is amen, amen. What it means is this. What Jesus is gonna say to them and to us, this is the absolute truth, okay? And this absolute truth is coming from the preeminent one, the one who is the source of creation. According to Hebrews chapter one, verse two, all of creation, everything in this universe was created through Jesus. He was intimately involved in the entire process. And he gave his life for us as a witness to God himself. Because later on, that Greek word for witness becomes martyr. Because so many people died for Jesus and Jesus died for us. That is Jesus's credentials. Which means, listen carefully to what he says next. And what he says in verses 15 to 19, you remember how with Philadelphia, he had nothing bad to say? Laodicea, he has nothing good to say. Because they're screwed up. What's the problem? 
What's wrong with these people? Well, there's three terrible mistakes that Jesus points out in verses 15 to 19. First of all, they had no spiritual impact on their community. And to illustrate this, he refers to something that they all knew about, all knew about, and that is their lousy water. See, Laodicea, they were like here, the city of Colossae that received the letter to the Colossians, they're here, and way over here is the city of Herapolis. So they're kind of in the middle, all right? Colossae, if you drank the water in Colossae, it's the good stuff. It's cold, it's refreshing, all right? It's like when we go home and we're thirsty and we get that fresh, good, wonderful water out of the refrigerator. That's Colossae. The cold, embracing freshness of the gospel. That's Colossae. And then there's Herapolis. Herapolis, the water, and this might not sound good, but it was good, is hot. To this day, the water's temperature is about 95 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? So people came to Herapolis for the hot springs. You know how, what it's like to sit in a jacuzzi. That's Herapolis, okay? So they offered healing, restoration. Colossae is all about cold, refreshing. They're about healing and restoration. And then there's Laodicea. Laodicea's water, they had no natural water at their site. That was the one thing they didn't have. The water had to be piped from five miles away. And when it arrived in the city, it was filled with calcium carbonate, limestone. When you drank it, it, you get the idea. To this day, when they've uncovered some of the pipes of bringing the water in, you can actually see the residue, all right? It's like that nasty stuff when we get our pipes worked on in our house that we haven't had touched for years. You know what I'm talking about. That's what it looked like. That's what they were drinking. And Jesus is using that as a picture of the fact spiritually right now, they're worthless. That's why one writer, Grant Osborne, when he was writing about this, he's telling them, according to Grant, he says, do you not realize that you actually make me disgusting? You make me look disgusting to people. They were called, like all of us, to be salt and light. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the first problem. They had no spiritual impact. They had become exactly like their community. If you saw a Laodicean Christian and you saw a non-Christian Laodicea, you couldn't see the difference. Secondly, they had completely deluded themselves. Did you catch the description of themselves? We're rich, we're prosperous, we're good. And they were anything but. They were actually 
spiritually destitute. I like what Michael Wilcox wrote about this. He said, the only good thing in Laodicea is the church's thoroughly good opinion of itself. (laughs) And that is false. She claims to have everything and has nothing. Now, this might remind us of a group of people that constantly opposed Jesus, the Pharisees, who were also self-deceived, who were also had deluded themselves, who thought they were righteous and were anything but in God's eyes. Sometime take a look at Matthew 23, where Jesus gives seven woes exposing the self-deceived Pharisees for what they were. But their biggest mistake, guys, when you put this all together, is they had stopped listening to Jesus. And they didn't even know it. That's why, lady, you see the picture of Jesus knocking on the door. It's like they've shut him out. Remember the story about Samson in the Old Testament when Samson gets together with that woman, the Philistine woman, Delilah? And when Samson finally reveals the source of his strength, which is the hair, because he had been dedicated to God even before, or was to be dedicated to God by promise even before he was born, and the hair was shaved off, and Delilah says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and Samson rises up thinking, oh, I'm gonna just defeat him like I've always done. And then the saddest line in his story is this, he does not realize the Lord has left him. Somewhere along the line, God's presence had largely been shut out of Laodicea. It's like in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, where the sins have gotten so bad in Jerusalem with the people's idolatry and their wickedness, God's very glory departs and leaves. That's sad. But you know what? It's not hopeless. Because Jesus doesn't say, I will, I'm going to. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. There's still a chance things can be different. So in verse 19, Jesus says, I counsel you, I advise you. In other words, you better listen up to what I'm saying. And then he tells them things like, put on white clothing, put on eye salve. What he's doing is he's drawing from their background, from their understanding, because the Laodiceans were rich. And how they became rich was selling this wonderful black wool clothing that everybody wanted. And how they also became rich was selling this eye saw because they were a center where they trained doctors. And people wanted that because it could remove eye ailments and things like that. So Jesus is saying, look, you want real riches? You're only gonna get them from me. What he's telling them basically is in the words of Isaiah 55 verses six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then he says as well in the next verse, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Don't be upset when he corrects you, for the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father, a child in whom he delights. Let me just stop on that verse for just a moment if I can. When the Lord says in verse 19, love, reprove, discipline, zealous. Guys, the idea in that all of those verbs is this is an ongoing thing. Meaning this, God loves us now, and you know what? Tomorrow, God still loves us. And the day after that, God still loves us. All right, that's an ongoing thing. Because he loves us, the ongoing thing is also he's gonna reprove us. He's going to correct us. He's also going to discipline us. Not once in a while. It's an ongoing thing. And to do all of that, we have to do something. And the something we do is a one-time thing. Repent. What Jesus is calling the Laodiceans to do is to turn. Turn away from their sin. Turn away from their righteousness. Turn away from their self-deception and come clean before himself. Now, if they'll do that, he has a promise. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it's not a knock for salvation. It's a knock for fellowship. Jesus is seeking to walk with his people. And then he has another promise. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I can't even quite get my mind around this. Jesus, of course, is going to rule and reign when he returns, all right? But he also is allowing us the privilege, although we absolutely do not deserve it, of being able to rule and reign alongside him. And I have no idea how that will happen. I do too. Sitting with Jesus, reigning with Jesus. Wow. Okay, let's wrap this up. Let's take a look at something David wrote a thousand years earlier. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David wrote this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. As we started this message 
Again, only Jesus sees us as we really are. Only by obeying him can we become people that honor him. So I have a question for all of us. Are you ready and willing to come to him? If you really want to change, you're going to have to see yourself through Jesus' eyes. And those eyes, he sees us, all of our faults, all our screw-ups, all of our hang-ups. And you know what? He loves us. If we come to him, if we ask him to search us and to change us, he will. But we have to open the door. So we're going to have a time as Rachel plays for people to come forward for prayer, whether in response to something you've heard in this message or whatever it is. We want to help. So if you need prayer, come forward. Let us pray with you.